Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released bonus episodes on this year's Oscar nominations and the four-hour Snyder Cut of Justice League. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tosh Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Our co-host Keith Phipps could not be with us this week, but we have a very special guest, Jen Cheney. Jen is a TV critic for Vulture, the author of As If, The Oral History of Clueless, and Once Upon a Time, a contributor to The Dissolve. Welcome, Jen. I am so excited to be here with you guys. I don't think I've ever talked even virtually face-to-face with Scott or Tasha, so this is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> we are a very exciting group here. Yeah, really, it really is. We, we would give you the, the best films to review at the, the Dissolve. <laughs> That's right. That's what I remember most about it. Absolutely. If Cream you, of the if crap. you look through the archives, she gets all the five-star movies. So, uh, so though American movie theaters are starting to open up across the country for the first time in a year, we're still sticking to quarantainment pairing films that you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're talking about two musical biopics about Tina Turner, which I thought would be a great opportunity to do a sort of behind-the-podcast on the next picture show. We can talk about our humble origins, our moment of inspiration, our meteoric rise up the podcast charts, our descent into drug and alcohol abuse, and our unlikely and triumphant comeback. So, please, hit me with some humble origin stories. Um, I can't speak for Keith, but it seems like most of us had pretty normal upbringings. We went to college, we worked our way into entertainment journalism, and we eventually met at the AV Club. Scott, how humble were your roots? Uh, well, whenever McDonald's had a sale on hamburgers, my dad used to buy dozens of them, put them in the freezer, and then we'd thaw them out for dinner sometimes. That's fairly humble, but I'm not sure it's good enough for an uplifting behind the podcast episode. So what about our moment of inspiration? How young were you when you knew you'd start a hit movie podcast? Well, the term podcast didn't even exist until 2004. And by the time we started, we had already done podcasts for the AV Club and the Dissolve. We just wanted to keep working together. (sighs) So what about our meteoric rise? (laughs) It's kind of been a slow and steady ascent. Also, don't meteors descend? Isn't that kind of what makes them meteors? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What about the descent into drugs and alcohol? I mean, I think all of us like to unwind a little on the weekend, but always in moderation. You could say that we occasionally ease into drugs and alcohol, but I object to the word descent. (laughs) Not just because of the meteor thing either. (laughs) Okay, so our inspirational story is that we all had fairly normal childhoods, got jobs at the same outlet when we were adults, eventually started this modest but sustainable movie podcast, and enjoy a glass or two of wine on the weekends. Maybe our biggest triumph will be coming back from the most boring behind-the-podcast episode possible. What have we got this week, Genevieve? The new HBO documentary, Tina, chronicles the turbulent life of Tina Turner, a singer whose life story has been an inspiration to many fans, even if she herself has been extremely reluctant to tell it. 
Born Anna Mae Bullock and raised in a broken home in Nutbush, Tennessee, she became Tina Turner after getting discovered by Ike Turner, the musician and songwriter who would later become her husband. The public knew them as the Ike and Tina Turner Review, a touring soul music act in the 60s and 70s. But it wasn't until after their divorce in 1978 that stories of Ike's abusive behavior fully surfaced in public. Turner's comeback as a solo artist with the album Private Dancer led to a best-selling autobiography called I, Tina, and a biopic named after the album's hit single, What's Love Got to Do With It. Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne's performances as Tina and Ike earned them both Oscar nominations. So this week, we'll look at What's Love Got to Do With It and the choices it makes about what to emphasize, leave out, or straight-up fabricate about Tina Turner's life story. Then next week, we'll bring in Tina and talk about her own fascinating perspective on a life of astounding hardship and triumph. Please join us. All she ever wanted was a chance to make her dreams come true. Every woman in here want to sing with Ike's band. Oh, please don't leave me, baby. That girl can sing. Girl, you shocked the hell out of me. (laughs) They want me to be his new singer. Watch yourself. You know what they say about Ike. Darling. Yes, Tina. I think it's gonna work out fine. It's gonna work out fine. Priceless, girl. Priceless. She priceless, all right. She ain't seen a dime of it yet. Everyone who's come up with me has left me. I wouldn't do that. I want the problem in. I'm trying to help Ike, all right? You trying to help Ike? You got yourself a good man. You just keep him happy. One. So as I suggested in our silly little opening bit, most music biopics tend to follow the same behind-the-music formula, whether a reality aligns with a dramatic arc or not. And it may be true, to some extent, that careers in music tend to follow a common trajectory, from unlikely beginnings, to the rise to superstardom, to the inevitable fall from grace. And then, finally, some form of peace and reconciliation for whoever made it to the end of the line. As viewers, we don't necessarily want to think about the possibility of our musical heroes relapsing or living with the pain of what happened to them in the past. And so the edges get rounded off, and there becomes little to separate Johnny Cash from Brian Wilson from the Bee Gees. And of course, way too little separation between the average music biopic and the parody Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. The Tina Turner story has that natural biopic arc without needing much tweaking on the part of the filmmakers. It is a genuine story of triumph over adversity, starting with Turner, born Anna Mae Bullock, growing up in rural Tennessee and setting herself on a path to perform before 180,000 people in Rio de Janeiro as a middle-aged pop star. She suffered two decades of abuse under Ike Turner, the songwriter, musician, and impresario who discovered her when she was young and controlled her life and career through psychological and physical force. She then reclaimed the stage name he had given her, Tina Turner, and figured out a path to pop stardom in the 80s, at an age where such a transition seemed more than improbable. And now, after all the turmoil, she can honestly be said to have found a happy ending. The best part is that all of it's true, and requires no massaging to fit into the satisfying form of a traditional biopic. And yet, what's love got to do with it makes some strong choices that set it apart. We'll discuss in a bit whether those choices were smart or not, but director Brian Gibson and screenwriter Kate Lanier working from I, Tina, the autobiography by Turner and MTV's Kurt Loder, put Ike and Tina's relationship at the center of the narrative, even after her solo career takes off. At a minimum, that decision pays off in two astounding performances by Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne, who play Tina and Ike as different kinds of fearsome. One, a commanding and resilient musical icon, 
the other controlling and pathological Svengali who directed his fury at her. When Ike first encounters anime as a teenager, he's an irresistible presence, a handsome and accomplished R&B performer of immense ambition and encouraging of the talent he sees in her. Their romantic relationship is an inevitability, but their partnership, even in the best of times, is ominously on his terms, starting with the stage name Tina Turner. The Ike and Tina review tours relentlessly, and Ike's volatility increases as the ceiling on his career becomes more apparent. He seems to recognize before anyone that Tina is the truly transcendent half of their duo, and his jealousy manifests itself in physical and sexual violence. What's love got to do with it does not shy away from this violence. It really, really, really does not shy away from this <laughs> violence. Gibson and Lanier have made Tina Turner's struggle to wrest herself from Ike's control the most important part of the film, right down to the very end, when she has found success on her own terms and he's still trying to get in her head. At the time, Turner objected to the depiction of herself as a victim and objected further to the inaccuracies of the film, which are always a matter of debate when you're talking about features on real people. But the question remains, how much of Tina Turner do we see in what's love got to do with it? She may have broken free from Ike Turner, but does the film break free from two? We'll answer those rhetorical questions after the break. I'm about to take a break. I ain't got no time to take a break. I got to work, man. Huh? I got to write these songs. Sue Records, them motherfuckers been after me about these songs for six months. You know how much money I owe Sue Records? What do you mean, owe Sue Records? Much as we work, they always giving you stacks of cash whenever we do a show. I, I know I don't spend it. Oh, no? But what about what, what all them wigs and, and wardrobe and whatnot you got in the back there, huh? What about the way you got this place that down, huh? All this furniture. That fish tank, this, 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 the sofas, that fountain and shit, that shit costs money, anime. I got to pay the girls and I got to pay the band. And on top of that, I'm trying to build us a studio. You know you want the studio. And I'd have it by now if you would sing the songs the way I tell you to sing them, anime. God dang. That's what I've, I've been trying to do, right? I mean, but they all sound like the same, you know? What? All right, so standard first question. So what's your history with what's love got to do with it and how does it play in the year 2021? I think this is my first time seeing the unedited version of it. I I, I think it, this movie came out when I was 10. Sorry to everyone else on the call for saying that. I know it's a, it's a trigger. <laughs> That's um, <horrible. laughs> but 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 I was I was I definitely didn't see this in theater. I have like a kind of a vague recollection of like the conversation around it, but you know my my memory's fuzzy, but I know I did see it at some point. I'm guessing probably on VH1. I, I know it played uh there you know at some point uh during my uh, teenage years. So I can't speak to what that version edited out of the full film. But I came to it this time sort of with the assumption that it was going to be a lot of kind of hard to watch scenes of, of physical abuse and, and, and violence, like a sort of the scene that stuck out in my mind was that first horrible beating where he's like dragging her by the hair down the hallway like that's like the first image that comes to mind when when I thought of this film before seeing it so I was kind of like braced for a, a uncomfortable viewing experience and those parts were definitely uncomfortable and uh hard to watch and I think we'll probably get into why but I was also surprised by how much of this movie was very easy to watch and really enjoyable and the the performances do a lot in that respect as does sort of the period setting and the production design the the filmmaking in general I think is pretty strong throughout and kind of keeps this 
from tipping over into melodrama territory when it, it could it, definitely in certain points. That said, I think there are definitely some issues with, with the, the storytelling choices the, the film makes, and especially kind of in light of the, the bigger picture of Tina Turner's career. But I think watching this film in tandem with Tina, the documentary, which we'll get into next week, but it provides sort of a fuller picture of her career. I think I was able to kind of appreciate the fact that What's Love Got to Do With It narrowed in on a specific point <laughs> or a specific aspect of her career, even if the point it chose to zero in on that specific point is maybe a little troubling. And I am, of course, talking about Ike and Tina Turner's relationship when I yes. say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about you, Jen? Uh, I actually very vividly remember seeing this movie because I was working as an intern at a radio station in D.C. And I was also tense. It was a huge opportunity that I was able to get that job. <laughs> so precocious. Yeah, amazing. Um, so we were doing a promotional screening of What's Love Got to Do With It. And I got to go. And it was just an absolute full house in Washington, D.C. And I remember you know, during the scene in the limousine where Tina starts to fight back against Ike, just this audience reaction, people egging her on and like just getting really involved. And then even more than that, at the end of the movie, when you transition from seeing Angela Bassett as Tina to actual Tina Turner, which is something that we see in a lot of biopics or even just, you know, movies that are based on real stories. But I feel like at that time, it wasn't quite as common as it's become. And people were not expecting that. And that theater went nuts. It was like, I don't remember if people actually stood up, but it definitely had like a standing ovation for Tina Turner kind of feeling, which made it extra moving. But even when I saw it then, there were elements of it that very much felt like a Hollywoodized version of the story that didn't totally play well then and that don't totally play well now. Uh, I agree with what Genevieve was saying about a lot of the, the movie and the performances being fun to watch. But the thing that I, I don't know if I, any of you have this response, but I remember um, that same limousine sequence, you know, as the limousine, they're fighting in the limousine and there's a point where they drive by the theater and you can see the marquee where they're supposed to perform. And Ike is like wailing because she's beating, beating on him, fighting back. And it unintentionally plays his comedy for a second. And I remember people kind of laughing in the theater and then even more so when they finally get to the hotel and they walk out and they, they're kind mm. of all bloodied up. People were really laughing at that in the theater. And I had forgotten that until I watched it again this time. And uh, that didn't sit right with me. It was a weird feeling. That reaction is so surprising to me. It actually does not surprise me that the audience would have that kind of reaction to her fighting back in that limousine. I think, I think we're waiting for a moment where she can get that sort of leverage on him. And it's a relief and kind of exciting when it happens. But I, I don't, to laugh <laughs> as if it were comic, I, I wonder if that was the intended effect because I had never, it did not occur to me uh, when I saw it, which would have been in, you know, in a cursed mall in, in 1993. <laughs> and when I saw it now, I, you know, I don't think I saw it with any kind of a, any kind of an audience. So I, I was very surprised to hear that that might be a reaction to, the, to that scene because I, you know, them going into the hotel because I, I just didn't really sense that that was intended that for people to, to laugh at. What do you all think? I don't think that that's a bad reaction at all. I think it's a cathartic laugh. Mm -hmm. I think it's a laugh of, of relief almost that at that point in time, uh, Tina Turner is just, she spends so much of this movie curled up and wailing or in the scene in the weird sort of uh, fishbowl recording booth they build into their home. 
just you know blank blank eyed and and dead looking with her mouth hanging open it's deeply traumatizing and to see her stalking through that hotel with blood running down her face like it's nothing i think it's just a tremendous relief if that confrontation is going to happen you want it to happen like that you want it to happen on her terms you want it to happen in a way that shows she is like holding up her end of the bargain that she's not crushed under it and i think that that reaction is just you know, pure relief and catharsis. I don't think people are likely laughing in a, oh, this is hilarious kind of way. I think it's just a relief of tension that, that's been building up pretty, pretty expertly for at that point, an hour and a half. Right. I mean, I think some of it is just the situational nature of things where when I can Tina walk in, they, they look very out of place and they look like they've just been in a fight. And they're in just the incongruence of that them versus what's going on around them is maybe what sparks it. But then I just think there's a little bit of what you said, Tasha, and then also just, I've been in movies a lot of times where people laugh at things that are, they shouldn't be laughing at, and it's purely because they're uncomfortable, and they don't oh, know sure. how to react, and I think that's probably some of it, too. Especially around violence. Um, I mean, I've been in a theater with some extremely uncomfortable laughter in uh, Tarantino movies, where it's not that the people laughing are uncomfortable, it's that I was made incredibly uncomfortable by the things that people chose to laugh at. But uh, that is a, a response to discomfort. It is a response to being unsettled. So, Tasha, what, what's your history with this movie? I'd never seen it before. This was oh. my first viewing. I'm just not a big pop music person at all. And uh, it, it took quite a while for Tina Turner to kind, of, kind of pop up in my cultural landscape. So I didn't seek this out. And of course, uh, as we've talked about a hundred million times, I tend not to seek out based on a true story dramas because of the kind of <laughs> immense creative liberties they take with the truth as with this story. So I wasn't hugely looking forward to this pairing, but I, I found myself kind of absorbed into this movie almost instantly. I think the storytelling is very, very slimmed down and effective, and it's it's very built into the emotions of the story. And this is inherently just a story about injustice that gives way to justice. It's inherently a story about escape from a monster. And as such, I don't think it's really an autobiography. It's uh, it's a limited story about somebody who was trapped and escaped. You know, it's not that all that different from like 10 Cloverfield Lane in that regard. But that makes it a very compelling narrative. And there are all these little, you know, Phillips and Furbelows on it, like the opening scene where she's uh, getting a little too rambunctious with her gospel <laughs> singing and in the world's most uh, buttoned down and joyless black gospel <laughs> choir that's ever been put to film. But uh <laughs> you know, for the most part, this is this is the story of somebody who who took a wrong path and uh, eventually righted herself off of it. And I didn't realize the degree to which that felt limiting until I watched Tina to get ahead of ourselves a little bit and to see how early in that movie uh, the story dispensed with Ike and and moved on to the rest of her career. So. I really enjoyed it while I was watching it. Uh, I think the performances are, are terrific. And I think stripping it down the way it is gets us a, a really good drama, gets us a really effective story. But it's not necessarily a story that, that does justice to Tina Turner's actual talent, which is a different issue and has no bearing on whether this movie is, is good or entertaining. But it is just some sort of something to consider. Like this... 
is an interesting movie to watch. It's entertaining in an, in an awful and oppressive way. It's really well put together in a lot of ways. It's also a lot of it is fabricated and it doesn't give you a very full picture of her or her life. So little, little from column A, little from column B. I mean, I think part of that also just boils down to timing. You know, like this was released in 1993 when, when Tina Turner was, you know, maybe like toward the end of her, her like reascent to, to pop stardom. But, you know, she was still, you know, pretty known at this point. But, and again, we're getting ahead of ourselves with Tina, but like a really interesting part of her career is that comeback narrative and the fact that she did it as a middle-aged woman and that she kind of like toiled in Vegas for, you know, a long time singing other people's songs. Well, she always sang other people's songs, which is sort of another aspect of her career that isn't really dug into here. But so there's this like whole later part of her career that could also make for like a really compelling biopic storytelling. But it just like it was still too close to it when this autobiography and when this movie came out. And like in 1993, I think the in terms of like looking back on a career, the Ike and Tina years were the point that a biopic would would look back on. So it, that's why I'm glad we have Tina to kind of place next to this now and sort of fill in that later part that, that What's Love Got to Do With It. Like it really glosses over like the last like 10 minutes of this movie comprise like 10 years, you know, <laughs> it, it just like really zips through the end there because it is really focused on Ike and Tina. I mean, it's kind of like telegraphed in the title, you know, this is about their relationship. And just from a storytelling perspective, again, I like, I appreciate that instinct. We've talked before about how a smart approach to biopics is usually like to narrow it down to one aspect or one like smaller period of an artist's career. And, and this does that. It's just like maybe a little unfortunate that in the broader spectrum of Tina Turner's career, this is the the part that is so highlighted, you know, at the expense of everything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the same reaction. I didn't know a tremendous amount of the, about the Tina Turner story when I saw this uh, back when Genevieve was 10. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I may have actually uh, been nine, I think. I didn't turn 10 possible? until later. 90, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was, uh, you know, a junior in college. So we, in any case, so I was able to experience, you know, for, I remember liking it. That's all I re- really all I remember about it other than, than a few select scenes and, and, and liking the movie and, and thinking a lot of the performances, which I still think a lot of. I, I, Angela Bassett is just unreal in this movie. <laughs> and I had to go back and say and look like how in the world did she not win Best Actress? And, and it happened to be the same year that Holly Hunter won for the piano it was also the year that emma thompson was nominated for remains of the day it was like career best performances by, uh, by these other actresses but she was certainly stunning and, and i think there's something there's a power to that performance that i think you know makes you feel like like it's not just her that she's got a certain amount of resiliency and like strength during during the you can't, it's not just her being abused relentlessly for two hours or something so there's a little more depth to it and, and, I, and I appreciate as we talk about always about biopics this does make choices this makes the choice to have I, I can Tina be the center of the movie you lose some things and then of course when you see Tina and of course we'll talk about that later you're much more acutely aware of the things that are being lost and you also end up feeling that Tina Turner's artistry 
and her agency are be given short shrift. Uh, you know that that after the divorce, I think I was looking at how far I was in the movie. You know how far into the movie I was, and I was like anticipating her reinvention, and that being kind of like the focus of the last. 20 minutes and and i just kind of kept coming back (laughs) and coming back and then the movie ends uh with him sort of walking away and uh and it felt like you know his shadow was sort of cast over her in a way that was oppressive and uh unfair to her talent really and and her individuality i guess so i don't know I, i the documentary ended up kind of slightly tarnishing my opinion of of what is really obviously i think a, a above average biopic i mean it's like an action movie when the the villain dies you can't keep the movie going for another 20 minutes that's that's why the sidekick always <laughs> like suddenly lunges up from whatever uh, obvious death situation he was in to to get in one final attack you know the the alien suddenly pops out of nowhere and I, I just repeatedly turning <laughs> up is just kind of a, a cinematic trope you know we, he's, we, he's like the main henchman in in die hard right do you think he's dead and then he comes running out and die hard what, what was what i was thinking of but also you know <laughs> both alien and aliens yeah i mean the other thing to remember though is this was based on itina as we talked about earlier and that book was published in 1985 and as they talk about in the tina documentary like the real point of it was hilariously in in retrospect to finally tell the whole story of ike and tina and then no one would ever ask about it again (laughs) but so because of that and and obviously they could have decided to do more and add more about what happened in the ensuing years post-1985 and they didn't but I do think that the book maybe drove a lot of the decision making about how to frame it in addition to, you know, what you're saying about it being more dramatic that way. But I agree that it does give short shrift to what really is the triumph here, which is that, you know, when she finally does break through and she gets to go play at places like the Ritz on her own, that Ike is not there. And that's should be the point is that he doesn't come back. He, she, the real achievement here is that he's no longer in the picture at all. And she's gotten away. And, and it it bothered me that right down to almost the last moment, he's still like popping up with uh, guns and whatnot to try to threaten her. It just seemed a little much. There are a lot of things about Tina Turner's internal life that I wish were were foregrounded mm-hmm. at least a little bit in this movie. One of the things is just uh, how did she stage that comeback? What decisions did she make? We see that the most horrible sequence of abuse in the film comes when she's written a song for herself, as opposed to sitting back and letting Ike write all of the songs. And it feels like potentially, given that she's writing about her hometown, that she's trying to communicate something about her own history and her own identity. It seems like, given that Ike keeps lording it over her, that he's the creative one, like she might be trying to create something that she can own. We don't know. We don't get any sort of indication whatsoever about why she did that or really any indication of where that song went after that moment. And in the same sort of way, we don't really know why she sticks with him. You know, we have the endless shape of abused women narratives in in film and television to tell us that it's very difficult to escape a violent man, and it's very difficult to escape a charismatic man, and it's very difficult to escape a man that you loved once. And we see him psychologically manipulating her with the like the constant refrain of like, everybody leaves me, you're just going to leave me, you're just like everybody else. But in the end, we just have to fill in all of those blanks for ourselves. And given that she's the one telling this story, I just wish we'd gotten a little more of of what was going on in her head during all of this. 
you know, there's there's all these motivations. There are the kids who mostly disappear after she leaves, apart from that one sequence. There's a lot of potential answers there. I just wish the film had had a little more interest in telling us what the truth was about something other than the grotesque physicality of the abuse. Well, one thing that I think it does tell us that you didn't mention is the financial aspect of it. I mean, keep in mind, I mean, right away, he is completely in control of that part of her, of her life. And it's very hard to leave if you don't have a penny to your name. And that's, and that's exactly when it's, what ends up happening when she does leave. She, you know, runs across 36 the highway. 36 cents in a mobile card. <laughs> right, exactly. That's all she that's all she has. And, and uh, you know, everything else is whatever stipend Ike is willing to give her. So he's in complete control of that situation. So that's an anchor in itself. The children are are an anchor, you know, and then everything else, uh, all, all this baggage that he's putting on her, this intimidation and psychological abuse, that's all, all an anchor as well. And maybe also that connection to something she actually loves to do, which is perform, you sure. know. I'm not saying that it's incomprehensible. You know, this isn't one of those stories where you you sit there and say, why the hell are they splitting up? Why the hell are they going into the the darkened (laughs) basement? Like, don't they realize what's going on? These are terrible choices. It's mostly just having her say anything about any of this in any way, having her communicate any of it, even after the fact, would have made her kind of more of a person you know, a, a richer character and a more comprehensible character. And again, those reasons are all there, but the movie leaves it up to us to do the math and to decide who she is based on relatively little evidence. So that makes me want to sort of highlight one of the things that I, I wish we had gotten more of in this film, uh, which is Tina's family and specifically Jennifer Lewis and, you know, her, her relationship with her mom, which, you know, we there's definitely there's enough there that you can kind of like figure out some of the psychology that is causing Tina to stay, you know, it, and we, we get some of that uh, in terms of Ike and again, him like being afraid of people leaving him like there's this whole sort of cloud of fear of abandonment, you know, hanging over both of them. And in Tina's case, like that's directly related to her mom and to her family situation. And like I said, there's there's enough there that you can extrapolate, particularly in like the opening parts of the film. But then it just kind of fades away, you know, and as Ike becomes more overtly monstrous and their relationship becomes more overtly abusive, all these other sort of components of Tina's psychology kind of just, you know, get shoved aside a little by the film. And in addition, like I would have liked more with her children, her relationship with her children, which I feel is sort of a direct extension of of her relationship with her mom, you know, and it's something that the film really, really compresses in several ways, which maybe we can get into (laughs) when we talk about uh, inaccuracies. But I think that like there's a really interesting line to draw, you know, in terms of Tina's family who aren't Ike, family members who aren't Ike, and how that brought her to the point where we find her in the movie. I want to, um, if I can, just jump in for a quick second, since you mentioned Jennifer Lewis, to talk about how crazy it is that she's Tina Turner's mother in this movie. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> because she's a year older than Angela Bassett, maybe yep. maybe even a little less than that. And on Blackish, she plays Lawrence Fishburne's, you know, ex-wife. 
uh, and the mother of his children. And in this, she's the mother of the woman that he's marrying. It's just, it's just bizarre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Movie magic, guys. I mean, also, Angela Bassett is playing a, a teenager at the, yeah, at the beginning right. of this film, too. Like, part of it is just like this movie covers many years and it doesn't, with the exception of that opening scene with very little Tina, it doesn't like recast at, at different ages, which I think is, is smart. And, both uh, Bassett and Lewis, I think, are definitely capable of playing the the different ages very well. But it is just kind of ridiculous to think that <laughs> yeah. that's the case. There's also just a degree to which, uh, like, you don't you don't necessarily, without any explanation, you don't necessarily get what you're looking at. Like, until I watched a video about the inaccuracies, I didn't realize that when she gets off that bus and sees her mother and sister again for the first time since childhood she's meant to be 16 years old and i hadn't thought about it too much but of course that fact suddenly made it make a whole lot more sense like her guardian has died she has to have some place to live she's not starting over in a new city with the opportunity of living with her family she's got to go somewhere because she's a 16 year old girl and watching that performance again i can see what she's doing that's actually a pretty convincing facsimile of a 16 year old girl but she still doesn't look like one because she's not one i think the choice was made to have that content the continuity of the performance be you know angela bassett's all the way down the line but it does i think hurt the film in terms of that relationship with Ike for, uh, you know, I mean, she was 17 when that relationship started. And that's a pretty major fact. I mean, she was still a child. And, and so uh, that part just can't be communicated as well as you'd like, you know, when, when Angela Bassett is obviously not 17 years old. Well, and it's also an, an element of Ike's abuse that the film isn't really able to engage with. Like grooming, I don't think was really a term at, the, at this point. Or, you, you know, even even in 1993, I don't think we were talking about abusers grooming their victims. But that's certainly what was happening here. Mm -hmm. And as you say, like us not really registering Tina as a teenager in those opening scenes, which for the record are some of my favorite scenes in the film, like that club scene where she gets up on stage to, to sing the first time is just fire. It's so good. But we do kind of lose another layer of nuance in terms of their abusive relationship. I think that what did you all think of the performance sequences in the film in general, I thought that was a, pretty much a solid strength of the film. I think we get a pretty decent amount of time with, with Ike and Tina and, and just Tina and, and on stage and see, to see how electrifying that is. We also get that feeling that the, the show must go on no matter what of just of of her having to be put in the situation where she's she shouldn't be performing. And yet she is, I mean, performing many times a night sometimes and doing it with unbelievable you know, energy is this, this is something that was sustained throughout her whole career. I mean, I, I was talking, uh, my wife saw her, you know, in college and she's, she's younger than me too. Uh, and, uh, and said that it was still one of the you know best performances she's ever seen. And it was just, you know, I mean, Tina Turner is just incredible on stage. And I, I felt the film did a pretty, did a good job c conveying that. And it was important to have that in there, you know, so it's not just all, a, you know, a chronicle of an abusive relationship. I mean, it has to like, like Tina Turner is a performer first and foremost, like she's, she's not known as a songwriter. She's known as a performer. She's known for her voice. She's known for her 
dancing. She's known for her presence on stage. And I think if this film hadn't captured that, which it does, in my opinion, I think if it hadn't, it would have been a, a huge disservice to her as its subject. And having Tina Turner actually perform the music, I think, was a mm-hmm. really weird choice that pays off. You know, she has such a distinctive voice. And I don't know how Angela Bassett is as a singer, but that can be a, a weird part of musical biopics in particular, is listening to somebody kind of try to do uh, an imitation of a performer who's known for being really distinctive. I feel like... I can't prove it. I kind of would like to read some interviews about this film, but it feels like Turner is consciously performing her own songs in her own past uh, in a way that starts her off as kind of thin and reedy and like bit by bit she finds her sound over the course of of the movie, which has got to be a difficult thing, you know, unraveling your own past and uh, singing the way you used to before you figured out how to how to really sing. That just seems like a really difficult thing. But you can hear the Tina Turner in her when she's singing. And I just think that doing that as opposed to having somebody try to pretend that they're Tina Turner is probably the smartest choice they could have made there. Yeah, I, I thought that all worked really well. And certainly that's a testament to Tina Turner's vocal capabilities. But it's also a testament to Angela Bassett and how well she's able to evoke those performances without it seeming like she's just doing lip syncing. The stuff she does with her mouth is so, so impressive. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I thought she was singing. I, I actually thought she was singing, yeah, I mean, which it's, is it's, pretty rare with a lip sync. Absolutely, um, she's very convincing. She's there's just a ferocity in in what she does as a performer that is is very much in the spirit of what Tina Turner does. And you know, Tina Turner's famous for her legs, but Angela Bassett's arms could arms. like crush a city. <laughs> oh my god, They're unreal in this movie. Just Got unreal. some like Chris Evans arms going on. Yeah, there. yeah, so good. I can't even fathom the commitment Bassett had to this role. I mean, just like, you know, just, I mean, every aspect of it, you know, the dancing, the physical aspect of it, the emotional aspect, like it is such a full, you know, kind of career defining performance. And and, and Fishburne is extremely good too, I think, as Ike Turner. And I think you kind of get from him, I mean, you you get the sort of seductive charm from him at the the beginning and how he can make somebody feel special as she does at that point. And you can also see that Ike was limited in certain respects as a musical talent, but also a significant musical talent, able to recognize right away Tina's talent, being able to develop, help develop that talent in, a, in the studio and on stage, you know, and, and to be, and also to be jealous of that talent when, when it kind of gets away from him, you know, I think starting with the Phil Spector thing. It's interesting that Fishburne manages to be so charismatic when playing Ike at his least <laughs> charismatic. Like I'm, I'm thinking of that scene with the interview uh, where like Tina's like looking in the mirror and, and talking to the reporter and answering for Ike, who is just like kind of in the foreground, silently glowering. Or I think it's during Proud Mary. There, there, there's an onstage performance where, you know, Tina is just 
setting the crowd on fire and Ike's like just kind of in the shadows and you can kind of see the jealousy on, on his face and also just sort of the acceptance that he is not even acceptance but the realization I guess that that he is kind of her backup now and and you kind of see what that does to him I wouldn't go so far to say that this film humanizes Ike Turner like he's he's a monster in in so many ways he's also a really important figure in, in rock and roll history who, you know, did write a lot of songs that became hits for white singers, you know, and I find I, I think there's kind of an interesting thread running throughout this, this movie, just in the soundtrack, that there's so much music from white artists who were kind of drawing on the black music traditions that, you know, I and Tina were, were coming from the soul music tradition. Um, and you know, we're we're for white critics, so I don't want to kind of get too too deep into this film's engagement or, or lack thereof with the, the racial dynamics of their their story. But I, I think the film does just enough to kind of reclaim Ike Turner's place in, in rock music history while not overlooking all of the bad he did within his relationship. Yeah. I mean, acknowledging that he was an artist, that that was, you know, part of him, that part of uh, what he did. I I think one of the more interesting aspects of watching Tina, the documentary, was just seeing how how much I think Fishburne and Bassett both must have studied footage of their subjects, seeing how much, you know, even though neither of them has a really close physical resemblance to the person they're portraying. They used body language and, and facial expressions and even proximity to communicate kind of the essence of, uh, of those two people as characters. And it's, it's just it really becomes interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I think the film does take a couple of steps, at least towards positioning him as something other than just this like talentless leech that was hanging off of her. It does kind of portray him as the, the Svengali who made her at least half of what she was before she went off and kind of completed that genesis herself. So before we uh, get to feedback, I just w- I wanted to ask one more question of the group, which is about the issue of factual accuracy, because, you know, if you look on like the Wikipedia page for this <laughs> uh, movie, it is just it is a very long list of factual inaccuracies. But then, of course, we also talk often about the need for filmmakers to enjoy a certain amount of dramatic license as long as they're kind of getting to the essence of what is true. So I, I'm just curious about how all of that worked for you here. I mean, the sequence at the end where he turns up with a gun and it seems just out to stop her from uh, achieving this this step that she's worked for for so long and she just kind of laughs him off and walks away from him and he doesn't do anything reminded me a little bit of the end of Argo just in terms of implausibility <laughs> levels it, it just really for me uh, you know it's positioned as a a satisfying end you know a satisfying put down of him that doesn't have to be a big violent confrontation that doesn't have to be a big a screaming uh, Oscar bait confrontation that's just like you can't scare me anymore because uh, you don't have the power to take away what I have you know that's very satisfying it's very cinematic it just it reads very very false to me yeah very written um, yeah I kind of said this earlier but that was of all the factual inaccuracies that was the one that bothered me the most because it did feel like it was something that came from 
like some sort of feedback survey that they had done testing the movie that if you're finally doing better in life, it doesn't matter until the person sees that you're doing better and, <laughs> and feels bad about it. And so we need to have him feel bad about it when in fact, you know, the opposite is true. So that that bothered me because it just didn't seem real. And 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 also it just, to me, it undermined the whole point of, of what she had accomplished. Living well is the best revenge, they say. Um, uh, but, but only if the person sees you living well and feels crummy and walks out of a club. Living living well in public. <laughs> so, uh, like, uh, there were a whole lot of, of little details. Like, you know, she she couldn't have sung What's Love Got to Do With It at the, that performance at the Ritz because it hadn't, wasn't written for another two years. Like, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff I can take with a grain of salt in order to, to get the right music in at the right time. But the two things that really did actually bother me were that ending and the fact that she's portrayed as a a blushing virgin who knew nothing of men when she met him, when she she already had a son by somebody else in the band. I mean, poor Craig Turner, like, <laughs> like who, I mean, this is very sad to bring up, but it's it's mentioned in Tina, like who died by suicide, like just, just last year, I, I, I think. And like the way that his just entire existence is kind of glossed over in this film, but then he also pops up later. It's very strange. And sorry, Tosh, I didn't mean to interrupt you or, or derail, but I think it's like, that's a really good example of sort of something this movie kind of glosses over that could have gotten at a really interesting part of Tina's like psychology and motivation. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that this movie needed 20 minutes of her as mother, in part just because, you know, the dreary questioning of women in all walks of life with, you know, okay, but how do you balance this with being a mother? It's just so tiresome. Like, I, I don't necessarily need to see how she raised four kids while being a, a rock star <laughs> when, you know, from interviews, it sounds like she did a whole lot of not raising those kids, mm-hmm. two of which were not her kids. You know, she she took them in because Ike's ex dumped them on her, as we as we see in this movie. But it would have been nice to know what their relationship was like, I suppose. It does feel weird the way we ha- we get that scene of them being dumped. And then we get the scene of her kind of trying to hustle them all off to safety. And then they all disappear until they're grown men. And in a household with a man that violent and abusive, you just you have to wonder what the kids went through. You have to wonder what their experience was like, since it seems like, at least in the movie version of the story, Craig was still living with him until fairly late. You have to wonder, like, did they physically fight before this sequence that we see? you know, were were the kids also dealing with abuse or was this a a huge surprise to them? There's a lot of unanswered questions that maybe wouldn't be so prominent if not for that scene where the kid shows up beaten and bloody and says, oh, he's going crazy and he keeps threatening you. Well, and also there's a scene that um, Genevieve was talking about earlier where she gets dragged down the hall and the boys are kind of standing there watching and I think it, maybe it is supposed to be Craig. Uh, forgive me, I don't, I don't remember. Um, but the youngest one, he has his hands over his ears. And then when they go back to him later, he just starts crying. And I'm like, that kid is not acting. And it just, it just made me wonder how even those boys who were playing those parts were affected by watching something like that. Mm, that's an interesting point. Um, I was going to bring up just in terms of factual inaccuracies. It's just, it astonishes me that there's a major inaccuracy in the closing titles <laughs> where, where they talk about, they where, where they basically suggest that Private Dancer right. was her debut 
her best selling <laughs> debut album when it was like her fifth or something like that. <laughs> it's like, come on. I mean, do it just like a basic fact check on that. I think that would be a fair expectation, but uh, that didn't happen. So I found that pretty curious and almost kind of like if you're a newspaper, you'd have to like, you know, adjust that because it's just, it's too egregious and also kind of stupid. So who knows? So there are many more aspects of Tina Turner's story, uh, some of which are in this film, some of which are not, that we will be discussing next week when we bring in Tina. But uh, now it's time for feedback. Okay, so we're back with feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We got so many emails about Promising Young Woman that I think we should do one more since it's nominated for several Oscars now. Uh, This one is about the purposeful casting of certain male actors. Tasha? Kyle from Chicago writes, After we finished Promising Young Woman, my partner said that she thought the casting of Adam Brody was an intentional reference to Jennifer's body, where Brody plays the leader of the band that sacrifices Jennifer for indie rock stardom, in a scene that reads as a pretty clear rape metaphor. And when Christopher Mintz Ploss appeared on screen, we both immediately thought of Superbad, which I think is true for many people watching. Both of these, quote, nice guys, as the Genevieve talked about, seem to be very purposefully cast by director Emerald Fennell, who's obviously extremely pop culture literate to bring to mind these other movies in which they've starred. And I think this casting extends beyond the purposeful casting of nice guys. I couldn't shake the thought that Alfred Molina's casting is a reference to Boogie Nights and his iconic scene in that. When Cassie enters his home, we expect another thrilling and painfully tense exchange, like the ones with Alison Brie and Connie Britton. And seeing Alfred Molina visited by someone who may want to do him harm certainly makes my mind jump to one of the most tense scenes I can think of. But what's fantastic is that there then isn't that explosive breaking of the tension. Instead, there's a sort of calm soothing of it, which leaves Cassie, and I'd argue us as the audience, feeling the need for greater catharsis. When Genevieve says she thinks Cassie's visit to Molina is the beginning of the end for Cassie and Promising Young Woman, that gave me even more reason to believe the casting was meant to mirror or at least bring to mind that scene in Boogie Nights. The fact that Molina isn't credited also makes me think it's very much a cameo scene, where he's meant to bring his stardom and our knowledge of that with him. First of all, Jen, I'm curious if you saw this film, Promising Young Woman, did you, and if you liked it or not. I did, actually. And I, I actually did like it a lot. I find the connections that the reader is making between the movie and, and other films, I, I honestly hadn't thought about some of those, um, particularly the Boogie Nights one. But I, I did like it. Yeah. How did you guys feel about it? We, we were varied. I think I, I was the biggest champion uh, among us. While recognizing that the film certainly has some flaws, I think I really responded to some of the clever touches that Fennell, like brings to the film, of which this is a, another really good example. The casting of Brody and Mintz plots certainly, like I, I definitely had a, a similar reaction in terms of like thinking that the that she was sort of uh, alluding to to previous roles and bringing them on. Although I didn't, I didn't jump to Jennifer's body for Brody, but that's actually kind of perfect. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't think about it in terms of Molina. And I, I really kind of like uh, Kyle's interpretation of what that casting brings to that scene, which now over a month on from seeing that film, like I do think about that scene with him quite a bit and, and what it does to Cassie as a character. I was just thinking about him as Doc Ock, so I was expecting him to sprout mechanical tentacles and attack her. And then when he didn't, I thought that was a really interesting reversal. Um, Molina's had so many roles that honestly, that 
the Boogie Nights interpretation did not occur to me. But uh, unfortunately for Christopher Mintz-Plasse, I think it's really hard for film fans to see him in any role without thinking of McLovin. (laughs) And certainly I think that uh, his casting there was very deliberate. You know, McLovin is kind of a prototypical nice guy. You know, he's, he's a sleazy dude that is kind of unpleasant to be around, but he thinks he's slick and he thinks everybody loves him. And you can just see how easily that would curdle in a wide variety of ways. So it does feel like that performance is meant to be kind of a a grown one option for a grown version of that character. And certainly I think Fennell is uh, weaponizing the the memories we all have of Superbad. (laughs) Yeah, but Brody's a good Brody's a good I I didn't make the Jennifer's body connection either because it's I haven't seen that because you hate Jennifer's out. body because you're terrible. No. That's probably Do you true. hate Jennifer's body, Scott? I was not a fan at the time. No, I, I, I did. I, I, I was one of the many who, who panned it at the time, and and uh, I guess now it has been kind of found its cult following, and uh, maybe I, maybe I need to revisit. But I, I haven't seen it since it came out. But Brody is somebody who, of course, who I remember from the OC. Uh, mm-hmm. Watched all seasons of those, and and. Uh, I think so. He it's can be clever casting in that regard too, because uh, he is you know a genuine nice guy on that show. Somebody who celebrates Christmas, who has a lot of <laughs> quips, quips of the ready, and somebody you kind of can trust. And so, so to have to see all of that charm, you know, turned sour the way it does is very effective. So either way you want to slice it, um, the casting in the film is really really good across the board. I mean, and you can get into other casting choices as well of Alison Brie and of Connie Britton also mm, I think yeah. perfectly utilized. I mean I think and I think Connie Britton is somebody we always see as is heroic. Uh, you know, we're, I mean we're and always... she's pl- and she's playing like a a dean which is not that far removed from playing a school counselor that she did in well, Friday and she also Night Lights. She became a dean at the end of, You're right. of Friday Night Lights. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know I mean the film is very shrewdly orchestrated to in my opinion a bit of a fault but the casting is a big part of that i think okay so uh so let's move on to the next email uh all of us showered nomadland with praise in our episodes on lost america and nomadland but there has been a little bit of dissent in some circles about chloe Zhao's approach including this email from a listener genevieve hussein writes in nomadland Zhao's docu-narrative style failed her I kept finding myself wondering, what is the value of this as a feature film versus it being a documentary? What does Frances McDormand add as the fictional manic pixie dream grandma tour guide that inserts her relatively artificial character into the real tragedy of non-actors discussing how they've been abandoned by the American dream? Why is someone who actually likes the gig economy the center of this story? Ignoring the book, what is this movie about? Is it about the indignity and impossibility of survival in the late capitalism gig economy? I don't think so. And movies like Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You do this much better without pretending there's beauty or freedom in this lifestyle. Or is it an impressionistic portrait of one woman's alienation and grieving in America? Sure, but that focus makes her a millionaire pretending to be poor in the middle of real suffering, all helmed by Zhao, whose dad was a factory owner. If not making this as a doc, it could have felt more authentic as a Malagasy Thin Red Line style film that wandered in and out of the lives of varying gig workers, showing how different this life is for everyone without centering fictional characters that I was the least interested in or having a non-professional actor be at the center of the film. 
So mm. the objection to this movie seems to be it's not a doc and it's not an advocacy doc advocating the specific things I want it to be advocating. Uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, effectively, the complaint here seems to be why does this have a story and why doesn't it have the the moral points of view that I'm looking for? I don't think that Nomadland is a movie about the perils of capitalism and the hazards of the gig economy and the weight of poverty. I think it's about the people who choose to isolate themselves from from society. For some of them, it's more of a choice than others. But we center on characters who for whom it's a, a lifestyle choice. There's not a lot of discussion about uh, poverty or limitations or like this is the only life I can have because there's no chance for me to rejoin society like they do at the end of Lost in America, which is what I really want. I don't get that impression from any of the non-professional actors here. I think you can certainly question her choice to center a character who likes the gig economy and is suited for it uh, because that's maybe in and of itself a, a humongous outlier position that may be a little disingenuous. But I do think it's a portrait. I think it's a portrait of a very specific woman who, as we discussed kind of extensively on the podcast, is alone without feeling lonely and how rare that is and what makes her like that, you know, how she came to be who she is. I I just don't think this movie is trying to do what Hussein thinks it's trying to do and failing to do. Yeah, I, I think it's a misread. I, I don't I mean, I what is this about her liking the gig economy? <laughs> I don't get that at all. I, I, it's, well, it's like, She makes it work for her. But I mean, this is a she's her situation is fraught, is perilous sometimes. I mean, she finds ways it gives her you know she finds some elements of, of freedom she's able to make the gig economy work to her favor to a degree and be able to, to kind of go from place to place and and uh explore the american landscape but at the same time you know she's also you know freezing inside of her van and having to you know park in places where she's not supposed to park and maybe her van is going to break down and she doesn't have the money to pay for it and like there's a lot of things she, she's really living on you know, a razor's edge. And I think we experience that part of it too. It's not all, you know, and, and she's also lost her home. She's lost her husband. She's lost a sense of stability in her life. It's a difficult situation for her. I don't think it's all, I don't think it's, she's a, she's not a manic pixie dream grandma in any sense of the term, in my opinion. I mean, it's a lifestyle she's well suited for. That doesn't mean that she is thriving, you know, or that or that it's a choice she she would have made. But um, I think the fact that she does turn out to be well suited for it is an extension of again that theme of alone but not lonely, you know, which is what I think of first when I think of what this movie is about. And we're kind of in the midst of award season right now, and Nomadland is is right in the center of it. And I think. Um, the the timing is a bit unfortunate given that Amazon is going through like a union busting phase, let's call it. And yeah. there, there's there's a lot of discussion about uh, Amazon as, as a corporate entity and, and what it does to workers. And that's all very valid discussion to be having. And it's something we should all think about in terms of our relationship with Amazon. But I think it kind of in the end is a detriment to this movie that it is engaging with Amazon specifically because it invites viewers to bring what is happening in the real world to their reading of this film that is, I, I don't think, built to you know make any sort of argument about Amazon as, as a company. 
Yeah, that's certainly legit. And I, I do think that there are legitimate criticisms about this movie's use of Amazon and perhaps because of the access uh, Zhao was able to get to an Amazon warehouse for, for shooting. There's certainly people saying that uh, she went easy on them, you know, that she didn't touch on all of the really real and horrible controversies around Amazon. So I think that when he says she loves the gig economy, that's what he's talking about is is being well suited enough for this Amazon job and it meeting her needs enough that she comes back to it year after year as though it's a good thing. I understand that critique. I just I don't think that this movie exists to take down Amazon. And I, I think the description Manic Pixie Dream Grandma is funny, but I also think it's just manifestly unfair. You know, the, the whole idea of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl character is that this is a character who has no agency of her own, who sparkles into the life of a sad man to like bring whimsy and joy back into it and fix him. And she she doesn't fit any of those categories. In fact, there's a sad man in this movie who keeps trying to help her fix him. <laughs> and she roundly rejects this at every move. Yeah, if anything, he's the manic pixie dream grandpa of this film. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not having any of this dumb trope. I'm going to look at the mountains and the uh, and the ocean. He's a, he's a he's a snack, right? David Strathairn is what they what the kids say. <laughs> snack. Hug, oh. Don't even start, Jen. Do, do you do you want? Yeah, to, we, we definitely need to hear from Jen on this one. Yeah, no, I I have read some very well written critiques about just what you were talking about, Genevieve, and I think what Hussein is alluding to, which is the Amazonness of it all in this movie, and and whether it's a really fair portrayal of that or not, but. What I liked about it from just a storytelling perspective is that in the beginning, you do see her freezing in the van. And in a, a movie like this, you're expecting this to be a very fully sad and depressing film from like beginning to end, just based on what you, whatever thoughts you bring to, to nomad life. And I like the fact that it wasn't like that, that there was this sort of sense of beauty and community that she and some of these other people were able to find. And it wasn't all easy and wine and roses by any means, but I I thought that made it more nuanced. And, you know, purely from a perspective of being in quarantine, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, I get to go on a road trip and it looks so so pretty outside. <laughs> and so there was this kind of um, vicarious vicarious living situation that, that I took away from this movie too. I do understand the perspective on the on the gig economy stuff and and especially the Amazon stuff, but I agree that from a broader storytelling point of view, that's not what this movie was was trying to to say or what it was aiming to be about. And I loved seeing it through Frances McDormand's character's eyes. And um, I would never, I mean, again, all due respect, but I would never refer to Frances McDormand in any context as a manic pixie anything. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, I, just, it's, I don't, I don't it's think a, that's her vibe. It, it, I mean, in this performance especially, it's so, she's, she listens so much of the time. It's such a nuanced, I mean, it's a nuanced performance and I think it's a nuanced film. And even, even when you're dealing with Amazon, there's something neutral about the approach or just like realistic of the fact that, you know, this is how things have to go for her now. You know, she doesn't have a full-time job. She doesn't have a house. This is her life now. So in her life, in her life involves going from one job to the next. And one of them is in this alien space of, of Amazon. Another one is that, you know, wall drug in, you know, South Dakota or North Dakota. South Dakota? South Dakota? It feels like South Dakota. I think South Dakota. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and ultimately, I don't want it. I don't, I didn't want this to be a Ken Loach film. I, I don't really like a lot of late period Ken Loach movies. I think they feel, they feel like too much like a polemic and, and that's not what 
she that's not the movie she's making and that's okay you know the, the movie doesn't have to be what you want it to be it's what chloe Zhao is wants it to be and I, I think it's it's better to kind of try to at least understand what she's trying to do here you know respect what she's trying to do at least and then judge it on those terms i think rather than say you know how can you have a movie with amazon in it and and uh and not take this kind of strong aggressive position against it uh i think it's kind of unfair but uh but but I, you all have much more <laughs> uh nuanced positions on on this issue i guess than i do and i don't want to i don't want to insult this listener it's a very fine and provocative email and we love those so uh we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at the new authorized Tina Turner documentary, Tina, and see how it compares with the feature version of her life. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads, and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please investigate what love has to do with it and get back to us. <laughs> <laughs>